This is the Prehistory Guys podcast. I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. Welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast number 20. Exciting times because this show is the first of our regular interviews with folk from the front line of archaeology, talking with experts who can illuminate up-to-date thinking about prehistory and really help us understand what lies behind the headlines of archaeological discovery. Yeah, that's pretty much the idea, to introduce you to the actual players in the field, people doing the work, making a difference to our understanding of what our ancestors were up to. And we're honoured to be able to say that the first in the hot seat is our good friend and colleague, <laughs> Dr Rick Pettigrew of the Archaeological Legacy Institute in Eugene, Oregon. Mm, however, before we do that, a quick word from our sponsors, or rather a quick word about our sponsors. You're very clever. Our activities <laughs> at the Prehistory Guys are supported by monthly donations from our patrons via the Patreon crowdfunding platform. We couldn't do what we do without the support we get from our Patreon fans. And if you yourself are interested in becoming one of our patrons, there's a lot more besides the regular podcast to enjoy as a subscriber. Films, live streaming, debates and special programs of all sorts. So please go to patreon.com forward slash the prehistory guys where you'll find out how to set up a monthly donation and the benefits and perks that come your way if you do. Oh, well said that man. You know, getting back to Rick, I have to be honest, and I can say this because he's not on the call yet, (laughs) until we got to know him a bit better lately, I I only thought of him as some guy who ran an archaeological film festival somewhere in the US. I mean, that's thanks to Standing with Stones doing well in the in the film festival all those years ago. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and and having got to know him more on the tour, it's just actually beginning to realise quite how much more to him there is than we originally thought. He's been a bit of a dark horse, hasn't he? He really has. I'll tell you what. I think I think the best way to big him up for our listeners is probably to read some of his biog, as can be found on the Archaeology Channel pages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? <laughs> I I quote, Dr. Pettigrew is an established consulting archaeologist in Eugene, Oregon, with 43 years of experience in Western North America. His educational background includes a BA, psychology at Stanford University, and an MA and PhD, anthropology, from the University of Oregon. Dr. Pettigrew has conducted extensive archaeological research involving hundreds of projects in the Pacific Northwest in both the academic, University of Oregon, and private sectors. He has published numerous technical works, including solicited contributions to the Smithsonian Institution Handbook of North American Indians. He is well-versed in computer technology, mathematics, remote sensing, lithics, and lithics analysis, and obsidian studies. I love that one. He's taught university classes and is a peer reviewer for several professional journals and the National Science Foundation. He is the founder and executive director of the Archaeology Legacy Institute. He was the 2006 recipient of the Society for American Archaeology Award for Excellence in Public Education, symbolizing his recognition worldwide as a leader in public education about archaeology and cultural heritage. Well, I'm impressed. So am I. (laughs) Should we bring him in? Let's do that thing. Hello, Rick. 
How's the weather over there, wherever you are? Actually, it's beautiful. The sun is shining. It's crystal clear. It's a, it's a bit nippy, but yeah. um, but it's uh, it's beautiful. Oh, okay, beautiful in Eugene. It's beautiful in Eugene. Beautiful green Eugene. <laughs> so uh, welcome, welcome to our podcast. You know what? You're the first in our line of regular interviews. Uh, that we're starting off. So um, double welcome. And, I'm very uh, honored. Thank for, you very much. Yeah, it, It's important, isn't it? I mean, and in fact, one of the things that Michael and I were, were talking about uh, not very long ago, actually, was uh, one of the other treats about having you on, apart from the fact that, you know, we've uh, over the last year or so, we've got to know each other, you know, we're mates, really. So it, it kind mm-hmm. of, it makes the interview, uh, a, you know, a, a much more comfortable place to kick off. But the interesting thing is that... Generally speaking, and particularly in Britain and Europe, that not a lot is talked about American archaeologists mm. because, you know, you have a, a, a history. I mean, you know, I mean, the United States, you know, academically, there's a, a, a history of not having an enormous amount of prehistory, mm. um, which is, you know, it's erroneous. And it's you mean uh, the country you know, itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, okay. yeah, but uh, but it's modern tech is is changing mm. so much of that, and uh, so you know boundaries being pushed back in the states all the time. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting place to kick off, really. I mean, I think we, mm. uh, unless Michael has a, another question that he wants to kick in first, I just want to ask you uh, for you to tell the listeners what it is that kicked you off into archaeology in the first place. Wow. Well, um, people ask me that. It's it's actually fairly complicated, uh, but maybe simple too. Uh, I've I've, always, I've been interested in archaeology since I was a little kid, actually, but I never really thought I was going to be an archaeologist. I was I was going to be an astronaut. <laughs> okay, <course> you, were. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, John Glenn was my hero. Oh man, um, yeah, I was going to be an astronaut, but uh, that that didn't happen. Um, and actually, uh, but I was very interested in physical sciences. Space and would be a bit crowded if all of us <laughs> wanted to be Actually, I still hold out hope. I still hold yeah. out hope <laughs> that I'll be able to get into space at some time. Hey, it's happening, actually. Yeah. But um, I, was, I was really into the physical sciences a lot, but I had very diverse interests. So I always was interested in ancient history and so forth, mm. archaeology, fascinated by it. But m- my trajectory was in the physical sciences. So when I went to Stanford as an undergrad, my, 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 my major was physics. So I was oh, in right. physics for two years. Oh, cool. And then I went through a metamorphosis. And I got really <laughs> interested in the social sciences. Yeah. And I ended up uh, with a psychology degree, but uh, very interested in anthropology. So I went to graduate school in anthropology at the University of Oregon, which is here in Eugene. And uh, very quickly gravitated to archaeology, which is the closest to the physical sciences among the anthropology disciplines, sub-disciplines. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of short answer. Uh, but it kind of connects my interest in physical sciences with my interest in social sciences and uh, you know, ancient times and human origins. Mm, sure. go but back, archaeology you know, itself is a, is a broad school. What area mm. of archaeology particularly attracted you, if any? Or, well, you know? it was just natural for me to gravitate to the archaeology of Oregon. Yeah, and I became oh. specialized in that. I, I did field work here, became interested and fascinated by it, and um, pursued it. And um, 
that was my PhD dissertation topic. Uh, my focus was on the prehistoric chronology of the Lower Columbia River, the Columbia wow. River being the largest river in Western North America. Mm-hmm. And the Lower Columbia was a focus of human occupation for a long period of time, and a, a large concentration of people, you know, at the time of contract contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I, in, my, in my dissertation field work, I developed the prehistoric chronology of the Lower Columbia Valley, which Amazing. is still, still what being sort of used. Time, uh, what, what, what sort of time scale are we talking about? Then? Well, the time depth of of the uh, of the archaeology there, in terms of buried archaeology in the mm-hmm. sediments of the Columbia River, goes back about three thousand years. But we know the area has been occupied for as long as Oregon has been occupied, which is about yeah. something like 15,000 years. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. plenty of surface material on the hills above the valley that are much older than that, but much more difficult to date. Those are also part of the chronology, but it's much less precise. Right. You know we, you know what? We get it completely back to front, don't we? Mm. When we think about we, it, it's American history that is short, mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah. your prehistory... <laughs> That's right. We have yeah, sites exactly, in Oregon yeah. that are clearly at least 14,300 years old. There you go. Which I dare say is, uh, that would be quite a find in Britain, wouldn't it? Yes, it that would. would. be amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's not to say there isn't uh, stuff Yeah, uh, certainly there's old up. material in, in the British Isles, uh, you know, Neanderthal, you know, um, Homo erectus sorts of things, mm-hmm. Acheulean hand axes and so forth. Yeah, um, but, well, we, um, we tend to, you know, yeah. we make a big deal about uh, things that are about ten thousand years old. So, like, you know, Cheddar yeah. Man and uh, and right. the like. Um, but, uh, but no, it's true. I think that whenever you find anything that's tangibly uh, that old, uh, wherever it might be, it's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. In fact, we we did a piece uh, in a podcast um, a year ago or so that was about um, now what was his name? Daryl Crawford. That was him. He's descended from the uh, the Blackfoot tribe, and uh, okay, so seventeen thousand year old DNA, uh, <laughs> you know, in the states. Well, that's major. That's huge. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I mean, we do have old things here. the The ages of some of the old material are always questioned. You know, yeah. it's controversial. Mm. Anything that old is going to be questioned pretty heavily. Yes, uh, but you know, it used to be that anything more than twelve thousand or thirteen thousand was considered impossible. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think uh, we're more cautious now about throwing out, throwing out, you know, the idea of older material. Yes. Yeah. So how did you progress to to being a professional then, Rick? Well, it it really came. To, I was always on a, an academic trajectory. Mm. So I went to graduate school. I was always going to be a professional, um, one kind or another. And um, as I got into archaeology. Um, I got involved in field work, uh, yeah. real projects, writing reports. I did my dissertation. I ended up being on the uh, fac- or not, uh, on the faculty at the, uh, the staff of the University of Oregon for ten years. Wow! Uh, as a research associate, um, I was responsible for the Highway Archaeology Program, which is the most active uh, archaeology program in the state of Oregon. Yeah, I traveled around the state about ten thousand miles a year for ten years, just looking oh at highway goodness. project areas, yeah, yeah. hundreds of projects, um, many excavations, uh, some quite extensive. And then I left the university and moved into the private sector, where actually most archaeology in in North America is done in the private sector by yeah. private companies under contract. So uh, I opened by, up, driven by um, uh, by development, exactly and by highways, development yeah, and regulation. Sure. 
so I, after I left the university, I, I joined a company from California or head, that was headquartered in California called Infotech Research. Hmm. And I, I opened up their Pacific Northwest office here in Eugene, and we began pursuing contracts and, uh, and grants and so forth. And um, we did hmm. some pretty incredible projects. So you, you're head of the Archaeology Legacy Institute, is that correct, Rick? How that's did that, right. Uh, how did that come about? How long has that been? Uh, well, that's around? been going on for a long time. It was about, it was 1999 okay. um, when I was feeling, I was, in, I was sort of mid-course in my career. I was in my 50s. I was trying to decide, am I going to continue to pursue this contract archaeology path or am I going to do something perhaps more interesting and challenging? I was getting tired of, mm-hmm. of writing these wonderful reports that sat on dusty shelves and no one ever read. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I felt that, that we were doing some incredible work and, and wonderful things being discovered, but it was not being shared. Mm-hmm. And that combined with my interest in technology and media um, caused me to jump on the bandwagon of streaming media. <laughs> So uh, 1999, <laughs> that was that was early years of streaming media, yeah, but surely. it just become available for people mm-hmm. with their, uh, their on their desktop computers. It was so, a topic that came up at the um, Sunrise Over the Stones conference down in Bournemouth a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Uh, this thing of um, papers and uh, research landing on dusty shelves mm-hmm. and not really properly reaching the light of day. Well, I, I feel that uh, as a profession, we have an obligation because, after all, we're we're studying the human past. That is the past of us as human beings, not just the mm. past of us as archaeologists. <laughs> so, uh, I I felt well, we need to do something about it. So, uh, and I, I've always done something of a of a risk taker. Mm. So. Uh, I just said, hey, let's do this. And I founded this organization with the idea of doing streaming media. Then the the following year, in 2000, we put up our first five videos. It's amazing when I look back at the primitive technology and uh, (laughs) the software and hardware that we had at our disposal. And we had no money whatsoever and nothing, no experience or anything. But we did it. We we pulled it off and, and we've been proceeding along that path ever since. But you're quite a large organization now. Well, you know, in, in terms of numbers of people, we're small, but I think we're we're fairly large in well, terms well, of our impact. No, what are the numbers of people? We only have about four people in the office that are actually mm-hmm. paid, but we have dozens of volunteers, both locally and around the world. Yeah. Yeah, you've been doing it for a lot longer than we have, but uh, right place, right time, I think. It seems uh, a, an impetus to try and communicate uh, archaeology. It's, uh, it's been very stimulating for me. I'm, yeah. I'm con- constantly excited about the new things that we're discovering, um, Mm. uh, expanding our network, meeting new people, connecting with people like you, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun for me. (laughs) Well, it's been great for us too. It Um, absolutely has, yeah. Yeah. Not least of which was – sorry, Rupert, go on. No, so I was just – I was going to cut in though and say, but it's interesting what – uh, what we find ourselves kind of homing in on at different times in our lives. And one of the things I was particularly interested in, in reading through your particular specialist areas, if you like, and one of the things in your list of uh, of studies is obsidian hmm. research. Study. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that because, you know, that's... Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a natural. Is, uh, mm. You know, it's an well, interesting it's... thing. So, yeah, tell us about that. 
Well, it's kind of a natural uh, for me here as an Oregon archaeologist, because Oregon is a, a place that's very volcanic. And oh. there are dozens and dozens of obsidian sources scattered all over the state. And in archaeology here, we find obsidian in all of our sites. Obsidian was a very much used uh, raw material for flakestone yeah. tools. Okay. It's, it's a, a, a very sharp material. It's easy to work. And it's abundant in Oregon. So we see it all the time. So becoming uh, knowledgeable about obsidian is really uh, uh, important for an Oregon archaeologist. And mm-hmm. for me, I, I like the technology of actually analyzing it. You know, the, the various methods that you can use to, for like obsidian hydration for, for using it as a dating uh, method, for example. Right. right. First time you, I've heard about um, that as a dating method. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah. if you take a cross section of an obsidian flake mm-hmm. uh, and, and blow it up with a mic, mic, microscope, you can mm-hmm. see a thin hydration layer where the water molecules in the environment are migrating into the glass. Wow. It's visible in cross section. Yeah. It, it grows at a at a measurable and predictable rate. So you can use it as a dating method. And if you have lots of obsidian all over the place, uh, of course, you do have to establish your rates locally. Mm. Uh, but and that takes a lot of background research, but it's possible to do. And it's been done quite a lot in Western North America where there's lots of obsidian. Um, and it's a, it's a useful method. It, it has its difficulties, as all dating methods do, but it is very useful. So that's just one thing that fascinates me about obsidian, mm. uh, beside from the just the techniques of, of working it and the, the incredible artifacts that can be made from it and yeah. the beauty of those artifacts. There are many different kinds of obsidian. Some of them are very colorful, um, and it, they're shiny glass. People like shiny stuff, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing when you do see some of those the, you know artifacts that you can just tell from looking were genuinely really prized items by their owners um mm-hmm. and uh yeah it is it's an extraordinary thing you know uh, there, there was that discovery last year of uh, some obsidian uh knives uh, found in siberia and mm-hmm. they were found a thousand miles from the actual source of the obsidian mm-hmm. yeah. and they dated yeah. back ten thousand years Sure, and uh, it, it, I, I find it, that kind of thing staggering. You know that even that far back, people were, you know, whether it was handing things or uh, along, or whether they were actually traveling with that distance with, uh, mm-hmm. with you know, it's an extraordinary legacy, really. Well, it is, and and obsidian studies around the world are fascinating in that regard. For example, in Japan, there's an obsidian source on an island off the north coast of Japan. Um, and finding that obsidian on the mainland is is one piece of evidence for early uh, the use early use of boats in Japan more than twenty thousand years ago. Yeah, oh, really, absolutely. Mm. Obsidian traveled all the way from yeah. uh, islands just north of New Guinea uh, over to Java. Yeah, uh, obsidian in North America traveled from uh, uh, Wyoming and Idaho all the way over mm. to Ohio. Oh, wow. Well, okay. Um, obsidian from Mexico is found in, it is Highland, Mexico, is found in New Mexico and uh, Kansas. <laughs> uh, so, yes, it travels great distances, uh, and it's a useful indicator of trade. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's, yes. a, it's a fascinating piece of, our, of evidence. Uh, 
One of our kind of pet subjects, as strangely enough, has been trade ever since we climbed up to the Pika Stickle and yeah. uh, to the source of the um, Greenstone Axis. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something? That, I mean, apart from obsidian, trade in general, is it something that has fascinated you, Rick? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting um, not only just from the social aspect and the economic aspect, but also from its utility in interpreting archaeological sites. Yes. You know, uh, it, 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 it establishes connections between places and between people. Mm. Uh, Do you have I, a take on how trade was taking place uh, in a commercial sense, that would mean? Well, I think wherever it, I think trade has always gone on as long as there have been human populations in different parts of the world, mm. um, because people in one area have something that somebody else wants, right? Mm. And the best way to get it is through trade. It's a lot safer than warfare. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, well we've always agonized about things like, uh, well, you know, uh, what, what price a good axe? You know, is, yeah. is that is that worth a whole bag full of flint scrapers? I shouldn't think so. You know, or uh, or, or or is it a pig? You know, mm. it's, um, or, it's basic. Or, yeah, basic economics. You know, yeah. it's, it's whatever you can get. <laughs> 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 yes, it opens up all sorts of questions about values, doesn't it? Really, <laughs> it does. It does, and it's the only measure of value that really makes any sense. Well, it it reminded yeah. me of when I was in Egypt and I was offered seventy camels for my wife, and. <laughs> She must be incredible, Rupert. <laughs> and, it, and it did make me wonder, you know, back then, which like, <laughs> yeah. You know, that should make you proud, that amazing, I have to though, say. But, you've, but, but strangely, with that, you put your finger right on it. We don't have the mentality, the mindset to actually deal with that instantly, you know. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, that's that's the thing about trade without money. You, you've got to be so canny about what value, what, yeah. what, thing, what value things have. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, once you've established a relationship, then certain standards are established, you know. Yeah. You, you know, you know, how many camels you need, you're going to need to give up to get a certain commodity that you want, <laughs> right? You can just say, well, last season, so-and-so got, you know, this item for only 50 camels, yeah. you know, yeah. so why do you, or are you charging 70? <laughs> yeah, caveat emptor. You know, I, think I mean, these are the kinds of, of, of discussions that come up in any sort of bizarre situation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about markets, <laughs> bizarre, yeah. right. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, though, because, you know, when, for example, uh, in, uh, in Grimes Graves uh, in uh, eastern England, southeastern England, and... Uh, and there was, uh, you know, it's a, a prime source of flint. And they found a beautiful greenstone axe uh, at Grimes Graves that came from Cornwall. And uh, and it, it does beg exactly that question. You know, was it that it was taken there and exchanged, you know, this beautiful um, greenstone axe exchanged for however much flint, of, you know, raw materials of flint or scrapers or knives or what have you? Because clearly the amount of work involved between the two is uh, is vastly different, and and it's just, it's one of the few things that, but it sticks in my mind of you know is that an indicator of uh, of a level of uh, of exchange, you know, or is it just coincidence and somebody dropped it? We don't. Know. Yeah, well, we can't always conclude that it's a simple matter of trade. 
uh, things can end up in places for mm. other reasons. Yeah, they can absolutely. Be, they can be heirlooms, for example, that somebody somebody has had in the family for a time and just lost it or mm. deliberately placed it there. We can't really know. I think we just have to look at the patterns that we see in the data. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see repeated repeated examples of certain items turning up in certain places associated with certain things, then it's more likely to be trade. Mm. And it, especially if it's a commodity people needed and used and they, you know, it came from another source, you know, trade is the most likely mechanism. But then, mm. you know, there's also the question of was it direct trade or was it intermediate, inter- intermediary trade? Mm. Was it passed along through some sort of a uh, a trade network or was it a direct you know, um, transaction between the two ends of the, of, of the, the, the relationship. Yeah. A question we'd love to be able to answer. Rick, we know you uh, better now because of course we spent two weeks with you on the, uh, Backbone of prehistoric Britain. We had tour, fun, didn't which, we? Uh, you we did uh, have instigated fun. and uh, and dragged <laughs> us uh, into. Um, we had a lot of fun. It, yeah, but uh, folks should know that um, you do tours uh, all over the place every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, where have you just come back from? Uh, I've just come back from Iran. Yeah. Uh, this was my fifth trip to Iran and our third tour of Iran. And um, what started bringing you over to this side of the Atlantic? Yeah, uh, uh, up until 2013, I never imagined myself going to Iran. It was never, you know, um, an ambition. It wasn't on my bucket list. Mm. But um, in in November of that year, I I received an email from the Documentary and Experimental Film Center in Tehran inviting me to be on the jury of... Uh, of of their film festival, the oh Cinema my. Verite International Documentary Film Festival. This came as quite a surprise, <laughs> and I had to make a decision. Um, it provoked a little bit of anxiety, as, uh, because I, you know, we hear all sorts of negative things about Iran, and my wife didn't want me to go. You know, she was afraid I would never come back. <laughs> I laugh yeah. at that now. Yeah. Um, the reason, Sorry, I think, which year was this, Rick? This was in 2013. Okay. Uh, and I think the reason that they, they invited me was because we had a relationship already because of our mm-hmm. film festival. They they had been sending us films for years. Oh, sure. They're, okay. they're a distributor of films, and they send us, they've been sending us Iranian films for many years. Right. So they knew about me. Um, I think at that time... They wanted to invite an American. Um, things were looking up in Iran. They had just elected a new president. Uh, there was all sorts of hopefulness that mm-hmm. they oh, that, that that things were were opening up, and um, mm-hmm. so I was invited there, and I ended up going. I decided that uh, I, if I didn't choose to go, that uh, I would never know what I missed. Yeah. So um, yeah. so I did go, and I'm very happy that I did because I made lots of wonderful friends there. Yeah. And that started a, a series of events. They invited me back again and again uh, for the next two years. And we established a relationship with them between their festival and ours. And we invited their people over to us, to our, mm-hmm. our location for our festival, uh, to be on our jury and so forth. Mm-hmm. And we had mm-hmm. this back and forth going on um, until, unfortunately, in early 2017, the uh, travel ban was instituted. And okay. and. Uh, People from Iran no longer can get visas to the U.S. Okay. Was that your but, first encounter with Middle East archaeology? Yeah, it was, actually. Mm. Indirectly. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, did it fire you up at the time? 
Oh, absolutely. You yeah. know, as I said, I've always been interested in ancient history. Yeah. I can tell you a lot about the, the ancient Persians. I've always known about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Go but actually <laughs> being there, that was very exciting. Um, yeah. the, the very concept of being there in the cradle of humanity, yes. uh, which is what it is. Yeah. The cradle yeah. of civilization. You say you, you know, you, you'd already made a study. You already knew quite a bit about. Uh, well, you know, as a kid, I was always inter- interested in that. Time. I took all the classes yeah. in, in high school about it. Uh, I've done a lot of reading on the subject, just just out of just pure interest. Yeah, but, but I mean, your your interests have become more broad than that. Uh, more broad than just that. Was it the mm. Iran experience that uh, broadened mm. your interest more generally, or had you already been making trips I had, to broaden had interest in other aspects? Of I've always history. been interested in faraway places since yeah. I was as, as far back as I can remember. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I chose to go to Stanford was because of their overseas program. Uh-huh. They have o- overseas campuses. Oh, that okay. that yeah. was fascinating to me because yeah. it gave me an opportunity to uh, to go someplace, you know, outside yeah. of the U.S., outside of North America. And was there one place you thought, you, you I have to go there? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. at the time, just let me, I can just mention that, that yeah. um, I, I chose to go to Austria to their overseas campus in Vienna, yeah, uh, which oh, I spent yeah. where I spent some time, and and as a result, I got to see lots of places all over Europe. Yes, including yeah. Greece. I visited ancient sites in Greece and Crete and so forth, um, and up in Scandinavia where I met my wife to be. Indeed, um, yeah. <laughs> um, so that sort of launched me on a very international trajectory, and um, my family is very international. My my kids have been in Europe quite a bit. Um, it's just just a continuation of my original fascination as a kid with faraway mm. places. Mm. That has never changed. That that's just mm. it, I'm just taking advantage of opportunities. <laughs> and where else do you take tours apart from Iran? Yes, well, uh, let's see. This this year we've gone to Yucatan to visit ancient Maya cities. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah, that's fascinating. Wonderful. And of course, Britain to visit the megalithic and henge sites of Britain yeah, with you yeah. guys. Yeah. That was that was a rush, I have to say. That was wonderful. <laughs> um, and then next year, uh, we're going to do the same of those three, but we're yeah. also going to go to Malta in April oh, and yeah. Peru in June. Um, I wish I could join you for Peru. Huh. Well, I, love Peru. Well, I think Malta it's my favorite country in the whole world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, Malta is fascinating for me because of mm. the prehistoric temples. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, back in 2011, I took a film crew to Malta. We made a film about Malta, which is on our website. Um, we were actually paid to do that by the Malta Tourism Authority. Mm. And we focused on the prehistoric temples, which has always been a fascination of mine. Yeah. These incredible, elaborate, huge temples made of megalithic stone with solid walls made of yeah. megalithic yeah. blocks. Mm. Um, and we, we must go because we're absolutely fascinated by the mm. timelines of all this, where yeah. those multi-temples um, fit into the whole process. Um, the extraordinary thing about the Maltese-temples is that they are so, for their period, they are so lavish. Oh, there absolutely. Is, there is nothing crude about them and you you think, who were these people? They are sophisticated, and they're all mm. made according to a, a single architectural design. Mm. Uh, they're just uh, variations on a theme, each mm-hmm. one, mm. uh, with uh, uh, 
elaborate doorways with hinges that you can see. They had doorways, wow. uh, rooms, side rooms, uh, built-in sculptures, bas-reliefs, uh, furniture, uh, uh, stone floors, uh, uh, gathering areas out fr- front, you know, uh, where you can imagine the, the public gathered while the rituals were going on inside. They had they had ceilings. You can see you can see where the roofs mm-hmm. had been attached. Actually, there are models of these structures that you can you can see in the uh, Malta uh, Museum of uh, National Museum of Archaeology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I'm fascinated by it, and that's we made a film about it, and we're going to take people to the temples and show them the temples, as well as the fascinating culture of Malta itself, which is unique. Yeah, the, and, the, and the, the Maltese um, temples date to. They date, the temple period dates between 7,000 and 4,500 years ago. Very much the same as the uh, megalithic and hinge sites of Neolithic uh, uh, Britain. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, pre-Bronze Age. In terms of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well well before, yeah. 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 The Bronze Age arrived in Malta about 4,500 years ago, comparable to when it arrived on the British Mm. Islands. Oh, I see. Yeah. Years ago. But that, that's what makes BP. the Maltese temples so extraordinary, though, because mm. from, a, uh, from an aesthetic point of view, from an artistic point of view, there's a lavishness to them that you do not find anywhere mm-hmm. in Britain. I mean, maybe a little bit in Ireland, but, mm-hmm. um, but mm. generally right. speaking, not. Yeah. They, they are unique. I, I don't think there are any other uh, examples of uh, uh, buildings of that nature anywhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is why it's such a fascinating thing. It's 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 a mystery. Um, no one has explained why you have up to thirty massive temples on these two little islands. These yeah. are tiny islands. I yeah. mean, the airport takes up about one fourth of the whole space <laughs> of the island. <laughs> yeah, um, and 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 you have uh, up to thirty temples of these these massive temples in the middle of the Mediterranean in an isolated island um, where the the population of Neolithic farmers probably didn't exceed about 10,000 people altogether. Mm. Why did they build these things? How did they build these things? And, and for what purpose? And who actually made use of them? Yeah. Mm. Well, it's actually, We've, it's very interesting, the words that just came out of your mouth. Because, again, it's, <laughs> it, it's one of our particular bugbears is that we talk about temples. We always talk about temples. And then just right then you said, and what was their purpose? And that's the thing. We still call them a temple. Was it? Were they? We we have no idea. There's no not a shred of evidence well, to say that they were. It's true. I mean, we can't you know. demonstrate that they're temples, but in this no. case, these these uh, these structures um, seem most likely to be temples because so they're they, that lavish. You know, but uh, they're, but they're lavish, but they seem... also have imagery in them. You yes. know, such as the mother goddess. Yes, right. But doesn't it seem extraordinary? As you said, doesn't it seem extraordinary that there are so many in such a condensed area it's yeah. uh, it's like well why do you need so many i don't know my, my thought is that maybe it's a pilgrimage site and people hey. came there from all over the mediterranean to visit these places and engage in the rituals yeah i'm uh, i'm beginning to come round to the idea that stonehenge may have been even part of its concept was as a a pilgrimage site was intended to bring people mm-hmm. to, to the place. I yeah. mean, it's, a, it's an area that's become another area that has started to really fascinate us, and that is, of course, the migrations and um, 
uh, um, movements of people from one place to another and the transition periods that you get, particularly uh, from the Mesolithic into the Neolithic in the British Isles and later, of course, from um, the Neolithic into the Bronze Age, as represented by the, what we call the Beaker Invasion, or mm -hmm. we've discussed that, haven't we? Yeah. Do you do you have a particular fascination in that area? Do you do yeah. you have a take on migrations in Europe? Yeah, it's actually. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by mysteries, and, yeah. and these transitional periods are always somewhat mysterious because mm. we 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 struggle to understand why they happened and how they happened. Um, in the case of Europe, there's a, a whole series of waves of people, mostly mm. traveling from east to west across Eurasia. Yeah. Um, and, and why did they happen? Why did they happen at the particular moment in time that they happened? It's, it's very difficult to say. Mm. Um, mm. But we know that there's a progression of culture. Cultures mm. tend to become more complex. Population yeah. tends to grow. Yeah. And new phenomena take place as, as a result of that. And, yes, and we maybe, talked recently maybe, about yeah. one of the phenomena, one of the symptoms of uh, changes and, and densities of population, the stresses that can come about. Uh, we've become aware of uh, rather macabre goings-on and inter-tribal conflict and mm. that sort of thing, resulting in rather... Right. You know, you know, while we were on our tour, I kept drawing parallels between Malta and the British Isles, right? I did yes. that all the time. Still, it still strikes me, <laughs> well, you know, great. because, because the, the, the Bronze Age um, brought an end to the temple period on Malta. Mm -hmm. The Bronze Age appears, yeah. and all of a sudden, there are no more temples being built. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, there's a complete change of culture. It happens suddenly. Apparently, in the, at least it looks that way in the archaeological record. Well, that's yeah. fascinating because we have it that um, the, the change into the Bronze Age on the main body of Europe was as a result of a cultural expansion, a, a, a cultural, um, not, not migration, a cultural osmosis mm -hmm. of the, the beaker culture. Now, in Britain... What we seem to have, according to the DNA, is an actual replacement of the population by and large mm -hmm. over a period of 100 or 200 years. But that doesn't seem to have been the case on, on, in mainland Europe. And I wondered, mm. was there something, has there been any research as to you know, how, whether the population on, uh, on Malta was uh, exchanged? We, we don't have any direct information about it, but it does seem, to be that, it does seem that there was a population uh, replacement. Mm. The population of uh, Malta today um, is derived from the ancient Phoenicians and people who arrived in more recent times as well. Oh, that's that represented that represented discontinuity as well. Oh my you goodness! Know. Yeah, well, that, uh, there's a rabbit hole we could go down, isn't there? Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> I tell you. Yeah. But there is a rabbit hole we can go down, and it's not a subject that in uh, our podcasts or our films that we've touched upon uh, at all. And uh, after the tour, you stayed for a couple of days at our house, and we found ourselves at the dining room table talking about language. Mm. And you suddenly, in that moment, opened up a whole field of uh, prehistoric research that mm -hmm. I hadn't been mm. uh, aware of, and that is the uh, development and evolution of language as a tool right. for um, looking at how people were moving about um, yeah. before anything even got written down. Yeah, well, I think language mm. is a very important uh, tool for mm. 
interpreting prehistory and history for that matter, mm-hmm. yeah. um, because it contains all sorts of information. Yeah. Um, and by looking at how language vocabularies differ, for example, you can estimate the time the time it has taken for those two languages to evolve since they separated. Yeah. So the Indo-European languages began in in Central Asia. Yeah. Um, somewhere uh, somewhere yeah. around five or six thousand years ago. Yeah. Right. And all of the branches of Indo-European uh, were there and gradually uh, evolved separately from one another. Uh, and moved in different directions. Yes. Um, the um, uh, the ancestors of today's Germanic languages, Celtic languages, Slavic yes. languages, Italic, uh, Greek, those are all separate branches of Indo-European mm. that all moved westward. Yeah. And, but and, some and, moved you know, east as well, didn't they? And some yeah. of them moved yeah. east. Okay, you have Tokarian, which, which was the easternmost group that moved into what's now Xinjiang province in China mm-hmm. uh, by about oh, 3,000 years ago or so, maybe earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you had the, um, uh, the ancestors of, uh, uh, well, you had what was named, what are called the Aryan peoples moving southward from Central Asia into India and Iran. Right. Sanskrit is an ancient language which descends from Indo-European and Central Asia. Uh, Farsi is one of those languages yes. that whose ancestor moved southward from Central Asia into the Iranian plateau. Yes. Uh, and others say the same. Armenian is another branch. Um, there were uh, the Hittites were apparently Indo-European speakers of, uh, of a different kind. Yeah. Um, and so you had people moving east, south, and west from Central Asia. It's kind of mysterious. Uh, what gave them the advantage? Yeah. Uh, what what made it possible for them to move and take over the space that was uh, inhabited by people who were there before they arrived? What gave well, them well, a competitive exactly. advantage? And yeah, we don't really the, know. Because the Indo-European language is not riding on the back of um, farming. The right. wave we, we, of farming the, had come before, hadn't it? Yes, it had. Uh, but the Indo-European languages, or Proto-Indo-European was spoken by people who were, in fact, farmers. Because yes. if you do the comparison of the vocabularies, you can see that the words that they have in common um, yeah. basically describe a life way of farmers. Also, yeah. it tells you something about their land because they, the words themselves refer to the landscape. Yeah. So... Yes, they were farmers. They may not have been the first farmers. That, that was my point. Right. But yeah. they may have yeah, had certain the, the advantages. The first farmers would have had the advantage, so that would explain right. uh, 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 the spread of a particular brand of language. Right. If they're the second lot, that doesn't particularly explain their advantage. No, it doesn't. Um, and in Western Europe, uh, we only have one language isolate, which is Basque. Oh. You know, um, I think for a long time people thought the Basque were descended from uh, uh, late Pleistocene hunter-gatherers, right? Like a yeah. remnant of oh, late wow. Pleistocene hunter-gatherers. But now the, the current thinking is that, no, actually they are descended from the earliest farmers. Oh, and the Indo-Europeans came in as another layer uh, after that. Ah, um, that's and, fascinating. And, and, and basically took over the landscape from from other people who spoke different languages altogether, who yeah. are basically just gone. We don't have any any way of knowing about their languages because there are no speakers of those languages left. And Basque has no relatives that we know about. 
Fascinating. Can you speak at all about how um, languages are traced? It's it's rather like geneticists tracing right. what's happened down the the down the chain of the DNA. Right. Yeah. It's, it? it's it's kind of like DNA in the sense yeah. that you're you're comparing um, uh, different uh, related languages that are measurably their differences are measured in terms of vocabulary. Yes. And in terms of grammatical structure, basic characteristics of language. More closely related languages are more obviously related because their grammars are similar, their vocabularies are similar. So, um, for example, we know that English and Farsi are related because we have many words in common. Who right? knew that, folks? Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, that was discovered um, back in about the 1700s when uh, Western scholars looked at Farsi documents and began to notice that, oh, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of sounds like this. And once you've compared other languages in Europe, such as other Germanic languages, Latin, Greek, and so forth, you, you do see a lot of similarities among the vocabulary. And then you look for those similarities in other languages, mm -hmm. and, and, and my goodness, there they are, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty obvious now when you look at them and compare them. Uh, and so Proto-Indo-European as a language has been fairly well reconstructed, at least in terms of its vocabulary. Amazing. By looking at the common words throughout all these groups, these, these language groups. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to I'd like to learn a bit more about this, and um, you know maybe do a, a bit more on, about language in a future podcast or something. Yeah, I'm fascinated well, by it. Yeah. I think we should do. I think we should do. So, so uh, that pushes language back how far, approximately? Ah, language itself. Now we're going beyond the limit of what I can say because uh, clearly, but it's the languages that you can trace. So where you're right. you're, you're talking about okay. a connection between, uh, say, English and Farsi. So. Right. Uh, so, uh, if you were going to talk about genetic mutation in the same way that you know you can mm. calculate how long things took, yeah, it's uh, analogous. So, yeah. So, so what sort of periods are you talking about for that sort of evolution? Of well, we know we can look, we can trace Indo-European back about five or six thousand years, but not beyond that. And people have proposed connections between Indo-European and other language families, but they're highly speculative and and much debated. Mm -hmm. uh, because the, at the farther back you go, the, the, the fewer uh, examples you find of, of uh, cognate words. And the greater the likelihood that these similarities that you do find are simply by chance. Right. It's similar to, say, radiocarbon dating, where you can go back to about 50,000 years. But beyond that, there's not enough carbon-14 left to really be able to assess uh, how much there is. There's too little of it there. Mm -hmm. So you can't you can't use it beyond fifty thousand years. In languages like that, comparing languages and estimating times of differentiation, and even if whether languages are related, is limited by the fact that their similarities become so uh, problematic, so difficult to determine that you you can't have a consensus about it. Mm -hmm. I was doing a little bit of a search um, earlier on today. And I did come across the fact that uh, lingu linguists have done a really deep dive mm. on this. And uh, some, as a couple, claim to be able to identify 15,000-year-old ultra-conserved words. Mm -hmm. And they've identified 23 words. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, there, there are words that are similar. So, for example, the word ma in, in Chinese, yeah. um, of course, it depends on how you say it. Right, there are yeah. four different 
ma, ma, ma. Anyway, um, one of those is means mother. Yeah. Right. But it's also one of the easiest sounds to make. <laughs> True. Um, and so it may not be a historical connection. So it could simply be physiological. Uh, is speculative. And of course, mm. we all like to push the envelope of what we what we know, right? We like yeah. to push things as far back as possible. And I do the mm. same, of course. It's fascinating. Yes. <laughs> um, but but you, you you begin to lose consensus the farther you go. Now, but, but looking at it from the other direction, uh, language is, is integral. It's, it's essential for human beings, right? It's what sets us apart as human beings. So we know that language is much older than 6,000 years, clearly, mm. probably yeah. many times that. Uh, as far back as it is, I think the, the human beings have been able to cooperate using language pretty obviously at least 50,000 years. Do you, um, that's do being you, very conservative. It's extremely conservative, isn't it? I, you know, yeah. I, I was uh, reading a piece recently about um, Neanderthal uh, technologies, and uh, they're looking at some 200,000-year-old mm. uh, Neanderthal artifacts where uh, it's actually using birch bark tar to, uh, you know, uh, in tool use and what have you. And the fact that artifacts show that they'd tried different uh, types of uh, of tars and resins and what have you. So that uh, implies experimentation. Now, mm. that in itself implies a very sophisticated uh, level of uh, of communication between mm. people. So okay, there is no direct evidence, but you also have to, uh, you know, at, at least put a pin in it that mm. well, no, they must have been talking to each other to do that kind of stuff two hundred thousand years ago. Well, sure, we, we can make inferences <laughs> that they were able to um, to share ideas to a certain extent, but we don't know to what degree it was language in the manner that we're used to. Um, mm. And and one of the great mysteries and. And uh, one of the great gaps is between um, communication system like the the great apes have Mm -hmm. and language. Mm -hmm. What would there have been that was intermediate? Can you imagine Mm -hmm. an intermediate sort of um, communication method? What is what is early language? What does that look like? What does that sound like? We don't really know Mm -hmm. Um, where I like to go with that question is um, to uh, compare how people around the world communicate in non um, verbal in a non-verbal sense or non-grammatical sense, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, tones of voice or common expressions that you hear all over the world. Mm-hmm. I think if you boil human, if you, if you just dispense with language altogether and just look at uh, common expressions that are non-grammatical, you can see a lot of commonality all over the world. And I think that was that's an early level to go to in terms of. Uh, evaluating or conceptualizing what early language was like. Give us an example. Right? Well, like, um, mm, or, uh-huh, or, mm-hmm. I don't know, there are other expressions that, uh, I'm sure after our interview, I'll come up with a lot more, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there are, there are expressions, you know, questioning attitudes, a tone, a tones of voice go along with, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, visual expressions or facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of things that we do as humans all around the world, regardless of language. Mm-hmm. And we understand each other even without language because of that, yeah. right? Yeah. And so Ruth, that but- has to be an early level of communication that that we all have in common, from which everything else began. Mm-hmm. Rupert, 
when we were filming at uh, Formby Point, it's part of Standing with Stones, yeah. the, f- the film, you made the point that for a huge amount of time, million, two million, how many millions years, um, human beings were just bashing rocks together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And then and, something happened. Yes. Yes. Well, it would be interesting to speculate that the thing that happened was language. Yeah, I think it's it's a very good point, isn't it? You know mm. that uh, that I mean, one of the things that, to be honest, I have never been able to get my head around this: how is it that the Arculian X basically remained unchanged for a full million years? You know, you think at no point in a million <laughs> years did somebody think, "Well, hold on a minute, <laughs> if I do this and this and this, then I've got a Swiss Army knife." You know that a, a million years. I just, uh, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. You think, you think of anything in the history of known, you know, in the known history of mankind, you think of anything that has gone unimproved for, <laughs> for a couple of centuries, let, you know, a thousand years. I mean, even the wheel was refined and refined and refined over hundreds of years. And yet here's a tool the man mm. started making and thought, no, that, that'll do for me for a million years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I So as Michael said, you know, yeah. what was it that actually made that shift? And it mm. does seem that the right. language, a more sophisticated level of communication, mm. is a strong possibility. A strong but also language itself does yeah. help us conceptualise mm-hmm. in the first place. I think you have your finger on something. There mm. is a wonderful book by Professor Stephen Mithen, uh, called, I believe, the prehistory of the mind, um, oh, and yes. uh, his conjecture is that uh, if you think you, you look at all sorts of different animal species, and uh, and they have actually different places in the brain for whether it's communication or sexual communication or where they store their food or, uh, you know, where they're going to go and sleep, the, the way they relate to the landscape. Uh, these are all things that are in different parts of the brain, and that includes some of the other primates. The only thing in his uh, thesis is that as soon as you start to use language, you're actually bringing these different areas of the brain mm-hmm. into a shared space mm-hmm you know, this central area where suddenly they're all having to be joined together because people are now sharing it in this kind of central space. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the way you then connect all these different things, you know, the way you relate to the landscape and what you're going to eat tonight or, you know, they all suddenly come together. And it's quite possible that, that, you know, that the human brain just took this enormous leap simply, if you can say simply, because of that. Suddenly mm. all these parts of the brain becoming united through language. Well, I, I do think the mechanism is natural selection. But in terms of history, um, I, my, my thought is that it probably began in Africa and that the uh, the migration of people in this last major migration of, mm-hmm. of humans out of Africa was part of that, 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 that the basic framework of modern humans was developed in Africa somewhere between 100 and 200,000 years ago. And that certainly by 50,000 years ago, modern humans had migrated out of Africa and were, and spread throughout the world very rapidly after that. I think these people almost certainly had language. They had developed it. 
Maybe the earlier waves of hominids out of Africa were by uh, ancestors who didn't have developed language in, in the, in the so. manner that we Maybe have. So. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I keep coming back to the thought that there there are probably other other levels of verbal communication that preceded the sort of grammatical language mm. that we use, but mm-hmm. still were fairly sophisticated um, and may have been able to convey uh, important ideas that allowed mm. sharing of, of ideas and concepts without mm. the complexity of the uh, grammatical structures that we're used to. A rich avenue to pursue. Mm. I think we should think about drawing our conversation to a close. There's a question I'd like to ask you, though, Rick. Okay. <laughs> if you had to choose one particular area of archaeology <laughs> to study for the rest of your life, where would you go? What would it be? You mean geographical area or no, no, specialty? Specialty, yeah. Mm. I've always been a generalist, so I find that hard to answer. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do have that. I, I, it's hard for me to narrow myself down because I have such diverse interests, and I've always yeah. had diverse interests. And I think that all these interests uh, come together. They 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 mm. they work together. Uh, Isn't yeah. that fascinating? Actually, do you think being a generalist is quite a rare thing in the modern world? Hmm. Yeah, it is. It tends yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, because uh, people could become specialists uh, for economic reasons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even though they might have broad interests, um, they focus on things because that helps them make their way. Right. Let me put my question another way then. Okay. What? <laughs> what, being a generalist, would you most like to achieve? Ah. Wow. Well, you know, I founded this organization of mine, yeah. Archaeological Legacy Institute, 20 years ago with the idea uh, that we should be sharing what we're learning um, uh, more efficiently, more aggressively with the rest of humanity. Really? So mm-hmm. this is what I want to achieve. I mean, uh, I'm working on what I want to achieve. Um, yeah. I want to connect uh, our profession with the people in a, such mm-hmm. a way that people can come to understand that... Um, Understanding where we came from is important, very important, um, that really understanding where we are in the world or anything around us uh, requires that we have a, a, a basic understanding of how it developed, right? Mm-hmm. How do you even know? I, I don't know. I mean, let me give you an example of, of where th- how I think about this. Um, when I was 19, I got into an automobile accident, oh. and I, I was almost killed. And I, I ended up on my back in the middle of the asphalt on a highway overpass. Yeah. And um, when I woke up, I I had total amnesia. I had knew nothing. <laughs> oh my I didn't even know what I was looking at. The rain was falling my face. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know what these figures were standing over me. They turned out they were people. <laughs> wow. Right. So oh. um, I think um, I think it's really just a growth of consciousness. You know, that humans have been yeah. on this path of, 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 of increasing consciousness throughout our history, and that path continues. Mm. And so I, I see what we're doing here with our organization as assisting with that growth of consciousness, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, who are we? Where did we come from? What, what is the meaning of all this, yeah. right? And uh, that's how I see it. That, that I, I want to pursue that and, and help to share that and and uh, continue to uh, promote the growth of human consciousness. Oh, brilliant. I'm inspired. 
and anything <laughs> we can do to uh, help you achieve that uh, that <clears throat> goal, um, Rick, you're, we're your men. Okay. We're your men. <laughs> well, it, it's it, it's exciting for me to be ha have this association. I'm very very happy that uh, we're working together now. Oh, Sorry, we are too. We are too. Yeah. Absolutely thrilled. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I have a feeling this probably won't be the last time we'll be chatting on a podcast. Just let me know. Just let me know. There's just so, so many areas that, uh, you know, Michael talked about rabbit holes earlier. Oh, it's so <laughs> easy to dive down those rabbit holes because there is so much to uncover, so much to dig out. And, uh, mm. Mm. It, mm. Yes, eternally fascinating. Thank you so exactly. much, Rick. Oh, you're very yes, welcome. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, really great talking with you. And, uh, yeah, we'll we'll put a date in the diary for, for the next time. I look forward to it. Okay, so that's it. That's it from myself and from Rick and from Rupert for the time being. Yes, but watch out. We'll be announcing who we're going to have on next month's show pretty soon. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear we've got some cracking interviews in the pipeline for you, so do keep an eye out for news. Yeah, and remember, you know, we don't just do these podcasts. There's loads more stuff we do. <laughs> loads more stuff. Loads of stuff that's available if you decide to become one of our Patreon supporters. Um, there's more podcasts to be listened to, but also we, we do live streaming videos, and, of course, we do our films, of which there are many available um, on our Patreon um, page. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so hop over to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys and you'll see how it all works. You get extra stuff and you help us to continue making these podcasts and more films, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, so hopefully see you around. And, um, yeah, that really is it, I think. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs> Thanks very much. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.